Welcome everybody to tonight's show. I have a very special guest with a book with the same title. The title of his new book, we've had him on, or I have had him on, I think it was back in April of this year. We talked about a book he published. It was Strange Tales of the Parapolitical Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History by William Snyder. But tonight he's just published another book, which I've read through. The title of that book is, as you see here, if you can see it, a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo-American establishment. So uh, he's decided to write it in three parts. So this is the first part, but uh, he draws a pretty wide group from, I mean, it's pretty interesting how far back these honey traps and kind of sexual blackmail go all the way back to England for sure. And some of the same cast of characters or some of the same people from then are really one degree of separation from some of the people we already know. So, uh, yeah, it's, he titles it Do Stephen William Snyder. So uh, just the title of this book is S. William Snyder. So do you want to go by Stephen or William? Uh, Stephen works for me or Recluse, okay. uh, which is what a lot of people okay, know me by. All right, so we did Recluse as well. So um, people who haven't heard you in the past or don't know your background, can you Tell the listeners about that, and then also um, how you got interested in writing this book, please. Well, I've been in this racket now for about 10 years. In fact, just a little over 10 years. Vise have had its 10-year uh, anniversary on October 10th. Uh, that is the blog that I've been the longtime curator of. Uh, more recently, I got into podcasting and uh, obviously publishing books. Uh, I guess I've been researching a lot of this stuff now for a good 15 or so years on the whole. So uh, it's been kind of cool to finally be able to branch out and do some different type of stuff. Uh, this one just was sort of an outgrowth of a lot of the research I had been doing into Trump's ties to Resorts International, which I had started to notice all of the strange ties that it had to Profumo. Uh, and then when the Epstein scandal really started to break again in 2019, I started looking at a lot of the British uh, members that I saw in Epstein's uh, infamous black book, looked at the names, and it uh, had really dawned on me that there was a lot of overlap with some of the same families that showed up quite prominently in Profumo, and that it started to send me down on a bunch of rabbit holes. Uh, initially, this, had, uh, this was supposed to be just one book. Um, of course, after I think writing like the first chapter or two, I was already up to like 15 or 20,000 words and uh, decided if I did try to do it as one book, it would probably uh, exceed war and peace and tragedy and hope, that type of thing. So ended up just doing it as a trilogy and uh, hopefully it'll give me a chance to explore some avenues that I might have had to uh, limit in a conventional one-part book. Right. And so you kind of go pretty much pretty far back to a lot of these figures back um, in the UK, but also some in the US. Can you talk about really the foundational or gestational kind of uh, groups that led up to Epstein? Yeah, well, I mean, um, of course, a lot of it sort of goes back to the uh, the Anglo-American fellowship societies and so forth that started to spring up in the early 20th century. Of course, the Pilgrim Society is a big one. Uh, there was Quigley's Round Table Group, which was another one. Um, and a lot of these groups had really sought to forge closer ties with the American establishment at the time. And that had eventually led to these, you know, these kind of interwar gentlemen's clubs. You had like the room, you had the ends of the earth club and that type 
type of thing. And gradually they were um, brought into the intelligence racket. Of course, they've been kind of used as unofficial spy rings in the interwar years between the First and Second World War. And, uh, you know, going into the Second World War, you had William Stevenson show up in the United States. And I think that was really when uh, the honeypot specifically became really prominent here, at least. Uh, of course, in the UK, there have been rumors that this kind of stuff had been going on for much longer. But Bill Stevenson, you know, it's I mean, especially in light of what we're kind of currently seeing now with the fiascos in this election. I mean, Bill Stevenson was really the guy who wrote the book uh, while heading the British security coordination here for just rigging elections. But I mean, one of the major tactics that he used were these honeypots. I mean, of course, there was uh, Arthur Vandenberg, the prominent U.S. senator who had been an isolationist and who had effectively fallen into uh, Stevenson's uh, web and uh, had ultimately come out to support Lyndon Lease and later... Um, relieving the British war debts, and there had been some other ones as well. So that had been kind of the prism that I started to look at all of this through and how these, you know, different players, these families are kind of intertwined in all of it. And it goes back to the UK, I mean, in between the war years, but it really started kind of uh, leading up to World War II. Can you talk about the connection to the UK intelligence to the US and how this kind of uh, honey trap was... Uh, has developed on their side, their side of the pond, so to speak. Well, I mean, in the UK, it's possible that some of this had even, you know, brought in with Crowley. I mean, of course, there were a lot of those rumors and what was it, the 1930s or something that he had been running these uh, these kind of strange honey pots and what have you that also had that kind of occultic activity and so forth. I mean, I suspect in the British society, they had always had this kind of stuff going way back. Um, right. But yeah, he, mean, was only, like, he was only involved in the upper crust of UK society anyway. So he's probably just hanging out with the elite back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they had a lot of these different types of characters who kind of uh, existed on the outskirts of British society who the intelligence services uh, seem to have found a lot of use for. I mean, certainly they seem to have had a flair for the dramatic. I mean, at the same time, they were what running Harry Houdini at one point and just a lot of other um, strange characters for sure. But um I mean, I think to some extent it was probably an outgrowth of the uh, the British public school system. I mean, obviously there's been so many tales that have come out of just the litany of sexual abuse and hazing and bullying that so many of the kids were subjected to there. And I mean, who knows? It might have been that this was also an early way of gathering blackmail on them. And certainly it just kind of seems like that just that whole mindset was really institutionalized in British society. And then uh, when you get into Perfumo, I mean, you've also got the stranger elements, the more occultic type stuff. And that, of course, almost inevitably invokes the Hellfire Clubs and um, right. what was it, the Moravian Church and some of this other strange right. stuff. So. Right. so the Hellfire Clubs goes back to the 18th century. So these kind of elite groups meeting in specific places or hidden away um, mansions or something like that goes goes pretty far back. And I yeah. think, you know, all the Brits. Anyway, can you can you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, in British culture, I mean, certainly you could probably see at least going back to the 18th century. And um, ironically, I actually think it was 
probably a big part of it, at least with some of the weirder sex cult stuff probably came at least from the East India Company. I mean, when you look at the uh, the Hellfire Club, obviously several of the prominent members um, have been uh, major figures within the East India Company. And it was kind of the same thing with the Moravian Church, which is uh, some speculation where Tantra had originally gotten uh, to uh, Western society in the first place. And again, they also had a lot of missionaries that had gone into India and many of them working under the banner of the British East India Company. So it was kind of interesting. I mean, we don't really think about this connection a lot, but the East India Company and the officials were many of the first Westerners to really witness Tantra firsthand in administrative capacity. And it seems like that was kind of a transference point uh, going into the late you know, 17th century, early 18th century. And uh, it certainly seems like that that kind of led to some of these just strange sex cults that began to proliferate uh, amongst the British establishment during the 18th century. Right. I mean, they're all, they're always there. But uh, can you talk about how that kind of led up to the interwar period and some of these characters that, um, you know, kind of led up to Profumer, Profumo? Well, I mean, definitely with the families. I mean, you obviously have sort of the Crowley connection and some of these other strange uh, people like that. Um one of the big ones that I'd really focused on a lot was the family of Julian Amory, who I think was certainly a central figure within Profumo. I mean, his father had been part of the whole round table circuit. And, um, you know, there was obviously the interesting thing with his brother, John Amory. Um, and I should preface by saying Leopold Amory was uh, certainly an early Zionist. I mean, in some accounts, he was actually the author of the Bel uh, Balfour Declaration. Uh, he was, uh, I believe, at least half Jewish, if I'm not mistaken. So there had been this element of Zionism. He had his two sons, John and Julian. John was at least a quarter Jewish, and he became just an absolutely fanatical Nazi um, during the Second World War, to the point that he had become a full-blown propagandist for the Nazi regime, kind of uh, the Jewish version of Lord Hee-Haw for the British uh, government, effectively. Um, but the thing that I had found out about John that was so interesting is he had been subjected to a lot of this, this sexual abuse um, in public school system, and then while he was still a minor, he had actually begun prostituting himself uh, to to much older male homosexuals, uh, which I think was a way that his brother Julian, who would later become such a major figure within the British establishment, had been exposed to this. And I mean, it must have been really quite shocking because, again, Leopold was, you know, a very powerful figure within uh, the British government. And I mean, certainly it's kind of striking that his son would end up in this, you know, kind of ring essentially as a prostitute. Yeah. And, and Leopold was uh, close to Chamberlain, Churchill, also a member of the Fabian Society. Mm -hmm. Freemasonry coefficient. So networked in these, I mean, that's kind of a common theme in your book is these uh, kind of elite clubs that these guys all kind of interrelated or yeah. connected to. And it's kind of amazing. I mean, Leopold really hasn't gotten more attention because, yeah, I mean, he was a Fabian socialist, you know, major bigwig in the Council on Foreign Relations, a Freemason. I mean, he had pretty much every box checks that you could think right, of. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. You know, his son ends up essentially being in one of these kind of honey traps. And then later his uh, other son, his younger son, Julian, would really become the major coup master for the British in the post-war years. I mean, you know, you look at Egypt, Yemen, uh, Iran, certainly. I mean, he shows up in almost all of them. 
And uh, he certainly seems to have been a major figure who took over some of these uh, honey trap rings in the UK domestically as well. So, I mean, it's really quite fascinating how he'd accumulated this kind of power, despite the fact that his brother, brother in some you know senses, had been utterly destroyed by it. Right. I mean, his brother was what put to death, right? They, they, yeah, they his brother was one of the... Yeah, he was one of the only British subjects to be executed for treason, and this was after Julian had tried to essentially forge his uh, citizenship in Spain during the war. Right, I mean, they still put him away. But uh, what you had an interesting thing about Crowley and Boleskin was the uh, one of these families was the Clan Fraser. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah, Clan Fraser of Lovett. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're quite fascinating. Of course, uh, if you're a fan of the show Outlander, um, one of the main characters, Jamie Fraser, is uh, an extension of Clan Fraser of Lovett. Of course, you see uh, Simon the Fox, I think, in the second season, who was one of the more uh, notorious figures. He was ultimately beheaded after the Jacobite Rebellion had been put down. Um, it was, I believe, his third or fourth son who had been the one who had originally uh, built Belowskin, um towards the end of the, what was it, 18th century or something to that effect. And it had remained within the, the family um, really, I think, all the way up to the time when Crowley had procured it uh, in the early 20th century. And even then, Lord Lovett, the uh, the patriarch of the family, was one of his closest neighbors. And then there was also, um, was it the Lovett Tyler branch of the family, Fraser Tyler branch of the family, who were also nearby. So, uh, you know, this Fraser family, who, I mean, obviously play a big role in my book. I mean, they were also very integral to Perfumo and a lot of other shenanigans, had this close association with Crowley and also Loch Ness. I mean, that whole area around Loch Ness had really been in the uh, clan Fraser of Lovett's family for decades, uh, up to the time that Crowley got there. And I'm sure, as you know, I mean, there's been reports of just all kinds of high strangeness going on in that Loch Ness area for years and years. So, yeah. uh, and Boleskin too. So, Boleskin all the way up until today. So, yeah, with a very high, high strangeness. So, um, for people who don't know, I don't think Americans have heard much about this story, or that maybe they've seen the movie Scandal. But you can you talk about the basics of Profumo and how important it was to uh, that that early '60s UK government. Sure. Well, I mean, it basically revolved around a love triangle that involved John Perfumo, the namesake of the scandal, who had been a uh, cabinet minister in the government of uh, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. And uh, it also involved a showgirl named Christine Keeler, and finally a Russian, um, Yuri Ivanov, I believe his name was, who was the Soviet military attache and also an agent of the GRU, the Soviet Union's principal military intelligence service. Uh, obviously, this proved to be quite embarrassing that a senior figure of the British government was having an affair with a woman who was also uh, in bed with a Soviet spy. And this led to Macmillan's government ultimately going down in 1963. The affair had taken place in 1961. But uh, the really, I think, unsettling thing about the affair uh, from the perspective of the British establishment was what it kind of revealed about them. I mean, the major figure behind Christine Keeler had been a quote unquote society osteopath named Stephen Ward, who had run her and many other uh, girls, many of them who were just barely legal and had been selected because they could still pass for teenagers for the British establishment. 
And, um, you know, this kind of got into some very dark netherworlds. I mean, the party initially where Christine had met uh, Perfumo and I believe also Ivanov for the first time was at an estate called Cliveden uh, that was overseen by the Astor family, another one of these kind of storied British families that had been around for a long time. And um, one of the gifts of honor at this family was uh, the infamous Lord Monbatten, Uncle Dicky to uh, Prince Philip. And uh, of course, if you've followed any of the uh, kind of pedophile scandals that have come out of the UK, you probably know that Monbatten has been deeply implicated in a lot of this stuff, uh, specifically the King Cora Boys Home scandal. So, you know, you've got him in close proximity to Ward and all this stuff. And I certainly think going all the way back there into the early 60s, there was a lot of fear that if people started looking too closely at this, it wasn't just going to be this particular scandal with uh, Ivanov and Keeler and Perfumo that would come out, but also what uh, else the British establishment was getting up to at the time, which was a lot more decadent than just, um, you know, sleeping with some showgirls who were adults. Right. I mean, there was this huge network, and they kind of leave that out of the Profumo, Profumo scandal. It's kind of seen, or at least I think it kind of gets shaped into this kind of uh, minimal scandal. But the fact is that Ward was networked with tons of the elite. And if people don't know, Prince Philip is the husband of the queen. So what's Prince Philip doing around in this scandalous kind of environment? But he wasn't what? just the only one, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's pretty good evidence that uh, Ward actually knew Prince Philip. They had been at that, what was it, the Thursday Club, I think, that uh, was kind of a bachelor of shindig that Philip and some of these other guys were involved in. Ward also knew um, Baron, who had been Philip's uh, longtime photographer, also the photographer for uh, Montbatten as well. So, I mean, he was, I mean, definitely in league, you know, with British society going all the way up to the royals themselves. And, I mean, yeah, just some of this other stuff that you read coming out of this is just so unbelievable. I mean, there was, what, the abortion doctor who had the fetish um, for women having sex with reptiles and just, you know, I mean, these were the kind of characters that were, like, lurking in the background with Ward. So, right. yeah. or, or he was networked with them, and he was also, not rumored, but was a into black magic or the occult, too. So some of these parties were tinged or with kind of occult ritual behavior, at least that's what's come out. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, you know, what kind of inspired the uh, the cover for this, uh, which I know was pretty raunchy, but I mean, this whole thing with these women, you know, in these Masonic aprons and uh, with the whips and stuff and the canes, I mean, that really does have a basis in reality. I mean, they would have orgies with this kind of strange stuff. I mean, there would be kind of ceremonial proceedings to it. Uh, they even had peacocks, just all kinds of crazy things that showed up in it. And it wasn't even just Ward. There was also... Um, what was his name? Ha Dibbins, uh, who ironically was also, um, he had been a member of the Plymouth Brethren, which was the same church that Crowley had been a member in. And uh, Ha had had a, I guess, kind of come to Jesus moment when he had seen a man being whipped by a dominatrix in his 20s, which had uh, changed his life profoundly and had also led him into a pursuit of the dark arts as well. And uh, these kind of strange occultic orgies that uh, proliferated in the early 60s. And did you, I mean, and, and uh, so there was this kind of S&M element. Did you ever trace uh, Ward to handling the founder of the Process Church? can't remember her name off that. Off oh, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Marianne de Grimstone or Macmillan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's... 
Uh, I never found any concrete evidence of that. I mean, I know Timothy Wiley in, what was it, Fear, Love, Sex, Death, or whatever, the the book that Pharaoh House had released a couple of years ago. He had denied that. um, And he basically, his argument had been that she would not, if she had been involved in Ward's Ring, she would have spoken about it because she was a publicity hound, which is certainly a fair point. But I mean... You know, there were definitely some people close to this who had died suddenly. Of course, Ward himself had allegedly committed suicide. So, um, a very fortunate suicide, much like Epstein's, right during uh, proceedings, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was even kind of during, like, the same time frame as well. I mean, I think, what, Ward had just committed suicide in August or something like that, just a little, you know, only a couple of weeks, I think, before the time Epstein's suicide had come out as well. But, um... Marianne definitely, if she had been involved in this ring, probably would have had a pretty good reason to keep her mouth shut. I mean, especially, um, you know, this would have been around the 60s, 70s, I'm guessing, when Wiley would have even asked her about that. So, I mean, this is when a lot of these figures were still alive. They would have had a lot more to lose to boot as well. So, um, I think there's potentially more substance to that than what some people would realize. Well, it's known that she worked as a dominatrix. So, and around that time, too, she was around... Uh, those, the you know, early 60s London, is my understanding. But and that whole, uh, that whole just network was very incestuous, too. I mean, I just, that would have been exactly the kind of thing Ward would have been attracted to. I mean, a dominatrix like that. I mean, <laughs> well, he was kind of like, I mean, we're maybe skipping ahead, but he kind of fulfilled the Elaine Maxwell role where he was out kind of uh, not really being a pit, but farming for women to attend these parties, right? Yeah, I mean, he was kind of a talent scout, and I mean, he also groomed them effectively, you know, told them what forks to eat, you know, eat with. Right, I mean, just like, just like yeah. Blaine, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the Viscount Tredegar, Evan Morgan? Because I've come across him from a different angle. Yeah, I mean, he's um, definitely an interesting one. Good old Lord Tredegar. Uh, I mean, that's kind of brings in an interesting Catholic element that I would have liked to have uh, gone more into. But I mean, he was a knight of Malta. And so were several of the other figures that I had uh, encountered in this. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, I think you had, um, what was it, the one Montesigar who had been the eventual Pope's boyfriend or something that uh, Ward had encountered. But yeah, I mean, there was just this strange network of these uh, Catholics and so forth. Of course, uh, Lord Tredegar had um, allegedly had an affair with, um, what was his name? The guy who had written the book, Dust in the Wind or something like that. Do you know the mm-hmm. one I'm talking about? It doesn't come uh, to mind. The Dust uh, Never Settled? Dust metal cells, yes, yes, Robin Byron's or something like that. But yes, I mean, he was the guy, I guess, who had started to really blow the whistle on some of these, uh, you know, elite pedophile rings with yeah. that book in the late 80s, early 90s. It also sort of made the connections to Crowley and so forth. But he had been yeah, Tredegar's lover, um, I believe, going back into like the early, you know, post-World War II years when he was still a teenager. So, I mean, he intimately knew that whole world. And I mean, he would later uh, turn up as a friend of Stephen Ward's and this uh, later circles. Um, Tredegar, oh, I think he had died. That in book is a, yeah, that book is a suppressed book. Were you ever able to obtain it? Uh, I think Jason Horsley had sent me a copy yeah. of it at one point, but I haven't gotten around to reading it yet. But uh, And he had written oh, a couple right. of other ones afterwards, right? Right. Yeah, no, I was going to reference, uh, refer you to Horsley if you needed a copy, because I know that he has a copy. He was the one who told me about it. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So Stephen Ward, Into the Occult, comes from the U.S., is a very kind of uh, 
uh, ambitious networker, social butterfly, social riser. But he was met like these incredible people all the way through, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the guy who had actually put him on the map initially was um, Avril Harriman, who was, you know, Skull and Bones. Avril Harriman? Yeah, Avril Harriman. Yeah, yeah, Skull and Bones. I mean, he was the uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.K. Osteopathy hadn't really caught on in the U.K. at the time, so Harriman was the guy who had originally sort of um, introduced him around. I mean, he got to treat, you know, Churchill, I mean, a lot of the other bigwigs and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, definitely he knew how to network. Yeah, I mean, I was... I mean, it seems like that was his real desire to be a part of that, was to kind of live the high life. But these guys, he was also into high-stakes poker. I mean, gay establishment at that time. Ward was really networked with kind of more seedier elements of that society at that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he had obviously the ties to the Claremont Club, um, which would become such a big thing in UK society in the 60s and 70s. That was, of course, the big uh, gaming establishment that had been set up, the, you know, legendary casino there in the Mayfair district. Um, Yeah, you know, there were a lot of shady characters there. And of course, since it's a gaming establishment, that inevitably brings organized crime into the picture. And that's not really surprising since, again, you know, this type of prostitution and so forth also overlapped a lot with it. And um, interestingly, I mean, you know, when you get into the stuff with Claremont, you've also got the Cray twins who come into this as well. Of course, they were, you know, quite famous gangsters in the UK during the 1960s. And um, also, you know, there was the allegations that they were curing young boys for some of these British VIPs right. as well. Right. And then there's Boothby, there's uh, yeah, all these Booth. other kind of, yeah, what's, what's the other guy's name who was supposed to be Crowley's heir? can't remember his name right now. But yeah, yeah. all these other kind of uh, notorious kind of characters were around that time. And there were more women than just Keeler in that group because there were other kind of honey trap type of females involved, right? Oh, yeah, there was, what, Mandy Rice Davis, who was, like, another yeah. one of the big girls. I mean, obviously, quite possibly Marianne, as we were just talking about before. Um, oh, gosh, there was the one Czechoslovakian chick, too, who uh, later ended up in some intrigues in the United States. So, uh, yeah, Marina Nostovic or something like that. Not Novotny, or what was the other one? That's the one. I mean, it kind of overlapped at that time across to the U.S., too, because some of this, the Profumio affair affected the, you know, uh, JFK presidency, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it looks like that uh, Kennedy had slept with at least two women that were affiliated with one. The first one was uh, the girls just alluding to before uh, Marina Natvico or something like that. Um, she was actually married, quote unquote, to Hod Dibbins, uh, who I just mentioned before. He was the guy that was into a lot of these black magic orgies and so forth. He had been a part of the Plymouth Brethren, as Crowley had been. And um, she had gone to a trip in New York um, around Christmas 1960, shortly after the U.S. presidential election. It was rumored that she had potentially had an affair with JFK at this time. Uh, She had had to leave the U.S. quite suddenly, I believe in early 1961. Uh, The FBI was in hot pursuit after her, though she later claimed that it was the CIA who had helped her flee the country. Uh, and then there was the other woman, uh, Susie Chan, or Chang, I think, who was uh, much more closely connected to Ward. Uh, in fact, there were quite a few witnesses who come forward later and said that she was one of Ward's girls. And she also appears to have had an affair with uh, John F. Kennedy during this time as well. 
And uh, that probably is uh, one of the major reasons why so many red flags were raised by the Profumo scandal here, because um, you've got a sitting U.S. president possibly involved in a ring that uh, Soviet intelligence might have also penetrated. Right. I mean, that's the whole thing is like, is one of these girls an agent? Um, so, it, I mean, it, it's pretty incredible. There's a lot of things that happen, too, in this book where one of the guys involved, Ward, was actually involved in the Cuban uh, missile crisis, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they had actually, the UK was actually using Ward and Ivanov as a kind of back channel to the Soviet Union. I mean, they had grandiose designs that they were, uh, you know, going to try to broker a peace between the US and the UK, set up a summit, I guess, in London or something to that effect. So, yeah, I mean, that was uh, certainly quite a coup for uh, a society osteopath. <laughs> yeah, no, very strange. Like, so he's clearly in some kind of weird network. And uh, he also knew another notorious figure, which is J. Paul Getty, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was another one of the Americans. Uh, of course, Getty had relocated to the U.K. during that time. And, um, you know, again, I mean, his family would later, you know, help put up money to support the works of people like Kenneth Anger. And, right. uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the kind of experimental arts and what have you uh, going on in the U.K. Of, or the U.S. later um, in the San Francisco and the L.A. areas. And, of course, Getty was a notorious womanizer, Um you know, apparently at this time, he had one of his assistants going out procuring, quote unquote, rejuvenating drugs for him so that he could uh, continue to indulge in his uh, passions for women. Uh, so Ward obviously would have been a uh, a man who would have had something that he would have been quite interested in. Yeah, so they had a mutual interest. I mean, some people have described the Getty Sr. as his life uh, as preapic, like preapis of, of Greek mythology, like. There's crazy stories about him, and even his son, Junior, was networked with all those people around the 60s as well and did all kinds of strange rituals like get in tombs and stuff. I think he was the one who who financed Kenneth Anger. So whenever Anger wanted to fly across the Atlantic, J. Paul Getty Jr. would pay for it. Yeah, yeah, I believe you're correct. Um, but yeah, there were just, they had so many, I, I remember reading a story with Kenneth Anger where he was talking about how they had just so many of these characters at the old man's house that I guess he had finally started to put pay phones in because they were making all these like long distance calls. And was, uh, I'm not paying for this crap anymore. You guys are going to pay for it. But uh, that's the thing that he was, I guess at one point, the richest man in the world, but he was really cheap. I know one time Ward and Ivanov had gotten drunk. They had uh, gone over to his mansion, called a cab from there, had driven around, couldn't find out where they were going and going back and ask Getty to pay for the cab fare. He's this <laughs> richest man in the world. He's like, no, I'm not going to pay up $10 for your cab fare. So, And I found it pretty interesting that Klaus von Bülow worked for Getty. And so von Bülow is represented by Dershowitz, right? So it's actually, and Dershowitz is whose attorney? Epstein's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least well, his attorney. At least his attorney. I mean, it's not, you know, because a lot of ways Ward really was a kind of Epstein-like figure in his era. So, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways it is kind of fitting that they come full circle like that. No, it's interesting because he really was like the good time guy and, uh, you know, not part, kind of a little bit of an outsider. Yeah, society um, climber very much. Right, society climber. Yeah, it's almost, it's very similar mold. And... uh I mean, there's just so much wrapped into the Profumo affair. Can you talk about William Mellon Hitchcock and his connection to that? 
Yeah, well, that uh, definitely brings up some interesting ties to what had originally got me interested in this, which was Resorts International. But uh, William Mellon Hitchcock, obviously, he's the scion of the uh, famous or infamous, depending upon one's point of view, uh, Mellon family from Pittsburgh, uh, the owners of Gulf Oil, the Mellon Bank. Uh, they've been, you know, obviously one of the most storied American dynasties for decades now in this country. He was an heir of this family. He is, of course, most well known for his involvement in uh, LSD. He originally had put up Timothy Leary at his estate in Millbrook uh, during the mid-60s. After he booted Leary out, he'd relocated to the West Coast and had eventually become the financier for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which by the end of that decade was the largest LSD syndicate in the world. Uh, but before he got involved uh, as an uh, advocate for LSD, he was in the UK. Uh, he was renting a flat out at one point uh, where reportedly he was throwing orgies and so forth. And it was into this netherworld that he encountered Stephen Ward, uh, along with his roommate, uh, a certain American private detective called Thomas Corbelay. And uh, those two kind of became central figures in uh, the scandal eventually breaking in 1963. Yeah, it's incredible. Corbelly, I mean, he, he's 84 years old, but he comes back to the U.S. and turns up in the Heidi Price scandal. God, I mean, who knows what, if she was selling off, she had a black book too, right? She had kind of yeah. an infamous black book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's also interesting because Corbelly goes into all the stuff with, um, was it Monica Heller and uh, Roy Radin too? Of course, Corbelly right. was a really, really good friend of uh, Robert Evans. I mean, they had known each other for quite a few years before the Heidi Fleiss thing even started to break. So, I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing with Corbley. I mean, he's shown up in these just sex scandals, I mean, for decades, you know, I mean, multiple uh, in both sides of the Atlantic, effectively. I mean, I really think that he was uh, a central figure for many years in running these kind of brownstone operations. Yeah, it's incredible. He was, uh, what was he, an FBI agent? I forgot what his actual real title was. Uh, he had claimed to be an OSS agent, but it seems like that was probably a fabrication. He had ended up working in military intelligence uh, during the Second World War and then in the post-war years and might have worked a little bit for the CIA. But um, he also had a lot of ties with organized crime, too. I mean, of course, his family had been a long history of working as private detectives. And uh, going back into the 20s, it was pretty common for the mob to hire private detectives effectively to keep an eye on the police and so forth. And that's really what his family had done. And they had uh, forged ties with some associates of Muir Lansky going back there. So Corbelly was, um, I guess you could say, a private detective who moonlighted as a gangster and an intelligence officer as it uh, suited him. Right, like he had different hats. He definitely, and he was friends with the notorious Roy Cohn too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cohn was yeah. Uh, one of his biggest political mentors, and uh, he did a lot of work for Roy Cohn over the years. And that's how you get the title of this book. It goes back to Cohn, Corbali, and then leads to Trump, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, you sort of see that kind of uh, nexus there. Of course, getting into the, you know, the second and third book, I'm going to flesh that out. But uh, it kind of plays in later to what I would refer to as the Drexel Burnham Lambert clique that was so big in the 1980s with Michael Milken and what have you. I mean, Trump and Epstein, Cohn, I mean, all these guys were a part of that. And another guy, too, that I get into in this particular book, uh, that's Sir James Goldsmith. 
big British financier, and he's a really important figure, not just because of his ties to Corbally, to, you know, later the Drexel Burnham clique, but also the fact that, I mean, he was instrumental in uh, setting up the movement for Brexit. I mean, he was the guy who really created the UK Independence Party back in the 90s, and uh, going, you know, I mean, he died, I think, in 97, 98, but I mean, to this day, a lot of his former associates were major financial supporters of Brexit, including his uh, his son-in-law, Robert Byron's, or something to that effect. So, Sir Jimmy, you know, was kind of doing the same thing on the other side of Atlantic that uh, Trump's associates were doing over here for this kind of, you know, nationalist revolution, if you will. Yeah, I would, I would, say, I would say that. But I mean, Cohn himself also was pretty sketchy. I mean, weren't there rumors of him trafficking kids or something like that, or involved in sexual oh, yeah. blackmail? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he was reported, I think it was uh, the New York Police Department had done an investigation and they had found evidence that he had this uh, suite in the Plaza Hotel, this blue suite that uh, he had potentially been running these teenage boys out of. And uh, of course, there were for years, those just incredible rumors that uh, he had also taken J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> what was it, uh, Louis Rothenfield and one of those uh, big distillery magnets and his wife and J. Edgar Hoover had gone to this suite uh, in the Plaza Hotel. And I guess J. Edgar Hoover had come out in full drag or something to that effect. And then uh, these you know, young blonde haired boys had come out and they had effectively had an orgy or something like that. Um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff you end up uh, encountering when you study this type of material. Right. But Cohen is definitely like an underground type figure. I mean, he was a, uh, an attorney, but he was friends with all the mobsters. It's just the real tale of his life. I mean, I, I need to get a biographer, but he was something else. I mean, he was all over the place. Well, he was a close friend of J. Edgar Hoover, too. And I mean, I sort of think that was at least the original basis for his uh, his power within the establishment. I think he was effectively Hoover's back channel to the mob, more or less, because, I mean, okay. Cohn knew all of the big gangsters. I mean, the major heads of the different syndicate families and what have you. And at the same time, I mean, he's going out and having lunch with Hoover regularly, kind of keeping uh, up to speed on all the stuff he's hearing. So, yeah, I mean, that's... Um, of course, there were rumors. Yeah, he, 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 he took money from them. He was getting paid to represent them. So yeah. <laughs> he, he, was, he was in business with the mob. But he also, Scott, I think he started off prosecuting the Rosenbergs for nuclear fraud and, and wanted them put to death. And that's what happened. Yeah, and then, of course, he later became Joseph McCarthy's uh, chief counsel during the McCarthy hearings and all that good stuff, too. And, yeah, I mean, he, he got around a lot. And, I mean, you know, of course, there were all the rumors for years that Trump had also been an FBI informant going back uh, into the 1980s. But, I mean, you know, with Roy Cohn, I think you could kind of see a precedent for that. And, I mean, just how these guys sort of manipulate the system, you know. Yeah, I mean, have you ever heard the story of Roy Cohn and John Holmes? Uh, no, no, I bet it's a good one, though. Well, look, just Google them together, because I think that he, Cohn was, he was on private planes, he would, I mean, this is the whole, it's like Epstein again, they would hire these guys, and and I think John Holmes was one of them, back in those days. Oh, man. So, yeah. No, you gotta read that. That's just crazy, because that brings in the, um, oh, the Wonderland murders, too, yeah, for that right. yeah, yeah. Oh, no, God. look at just, uh, that's a whole nother line of inquiry, but, no. uh, yeah, so Cohn, and then who's his protege or one of his friends, Donald Trump, right? So maybe we, we can save that for your other books. But uh, is there any other subject without, like, going through the entire book? Is there any other subject you'd like to cover? 
Ah, well, I mean, obviously, uh, another kind of interesting thing that turned up, and I know, you know, a lot of people are into the secret society stuff, but uh, specifically the role that Skull and Bones has really played uh, in the United States, and especially, I think, managing a lot of the different conservative establishments for years. I mean, of course, the big thing we usually... uh, you know, used to frame Skull and Bones is uh, Sutton's book on them, uh, the classic, obviously, that came out around 1980. But, um, you know, going back and looking at just the legacy of U.S. imperialism, which is something that I go into in the introduction, I mean, a lot of this was really driven by the Bonesmen. Um, They really sort of laid the foundation for, you know, what we would now think of as the neoconservative movement through uh, people like Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War for Taft, and then later FDR, who brought a lot of prominent Bonesmen into the War Department. And then from there, a lot of these guys went into the State Department. I mean, this was sort of the heart of the containment ideology in the early Cold War years that later kind of became the neocon movement in the 1970s. But on the same token, though, Skull and Bones was big in the, you know, kind of America First movement as well. I mean, this was certainly, you know, really personified by Robert Taft, um, who had become really the leader of the isolationist movement in the United States uh, in the post-war years. But also, I mean, the America First Committee itself grew out of Yale University, where Skull and Bones is located. So... You kind of had, like, on the one hand, this sort of, you know, Pax Americana uh, that was really driven by the neocons. But in the same token, you also had this kind of manifest destiny that was being driven by this, uh, you know, this far right element as well, kind of centered around the quote unquote isolationist. So it's just really fascinating that Skull and Bones has had this kind of diverse influence. And it's really not acknowledged when people get into this stuff. Yeah, was it like five Bonesmen were uh, behind Truman when he signed the National Security Act? Yeah, 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 and that's what I'm saying. These are all these Stimson guys that, I mean, he brought in uh, there. But, I mean, yeah, Skull and Bones, it just had a phenomenal influence on American foreign policy and what, you know, our country really became in the post-war years. And it's just so little understood. So, I mean, hopefully that's another, you know, little tidbit that people will take out of this book. Right. Um, Let's see what other, let me look at my notes. The, um, yeah, I mean, so many, there's like, a lot of these names that you talk about in your book, their offspring are in Jeffrey Epstein's black book, right? There's at least yeah. 10, 10 important um, UK families. So you see that network. Yeah. And I mean, you see some of the American ones too. I mean, obviously you have the ties to the Kennedys. I was going to point out earlier, but I mean, the Getty family is another one that shows up in Epstein's black book as well. So, I mean, you know, and that does obviously lead credence to some of these rumors that we've heard for years about, you know, just the intergenerational stuff with some of these sex rings and what have you. I mean, I'm always really reluctant to get behind this kind of stuff, but I mean, after looking at this, after the Epstein scandal and just sort of looking at, you know, I mean, the connections to these elite families and how it really does seem to have been this generational thing. I mean, especially hey man, look, look at Hunter Biden. It's just present right now. Those pictures yeah. on his laptop. I mean, you want to start naming names. Some of those, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about depraved. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean. His sister-in-law, tons of uh, four hire escorts, just all, tons of uh, meth. It looks like meth. I don't think it's crack. <laughs> anyway, uh, are you available to take some questions from the chat? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Anybody want to ask any questions of uh, Steve Snyder? Let's see. I think uh, 
Can you expand on the AA establishment? I think he means the Anglo-American establishment. Okay. Um, well, uh, I guess that's sort of a complex topic here. I mean, I guess you would... You would have essentially like your mainline Anglo-American establishment, which has been driven by the Pilgrim Society, uh, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations, that type of stuff. And this is really what had eventually, you know, uh, eventually emerged as the kind of globalist faction that we now look at when we're looking at the Bidens and the Clintons and a lot of this type, you know, different type of stuff. Uh, but within the British wing, there was always a lot of dissent. Uh, these guys had really always viewed uh, the special relationship as a means of creating a kind of Anglo-American empire, uh, which the Americans had just never really been that interested in. Uh, going into the 50s, when it became evident that the United States was not going to support the continuation of the British Empire, there was a lot of dissent in the ranks. And this is sort of what we get into in the first book, uh, the Special Relationship, especially with Julian Amory. Basically, these guys wanted to take a more nationalist approach that would, you know, maintain the UK as a major powerhouse. And a lot of these guys would eventually drift into the uh, Sir Cow in the 1960s, 1970s, and so forth, which... I mean, if obviously you read anything with my blog, this was just huge and a lot of these blackmail operations involving minors and so forth. But uh, this really, I think, began a kind of insurgency for what I would say is the alternative Anglo-American establishment or the alt-right Anglo-American establishment that would eventually emerge with Trump and Brexit in the early 21st century and essentially as a rival to this sort of globalist vision. But um, ultimately, though, they are both internationalist cliques, really. It's just basically a matter of approach. I mean, one side wanted something that was slightly more inclusive, whereas the other side really has always wanted this kind of broad Anglo-American empire to govern the world. Gotcha. So that's like the Anglo-American establishment. Um and for people who haven't read your blog, can you go back through and where can people find this book? Can they buy it from your website or is it uh, Amazon? Uh, you can get it at Amazon uh, going into Christmas time when the physical copy will be out. Currently, it is available at uh, the official store for my podcast. Uh, it is thefarmpodcast.store. That's all one word, thefarmpodcast.store. And then my blog is uh, Bizup, uh, B-I-S-U-P, com. Been there for about 10 years now, and uh, I've also got my podcast, The Farm, which you can find at thefarmpodcast.com. All right, you've had um, some excellent guests on there. I haven't listened to a lot of the shows, but you've had some uh, fantastic guests. How many episodes have you done so far? I believe it's 63 now, and yeah, I mean, we've had Richard Spence, uh, we've had Jason Horsley a couple of times, Chris Knowles, Douglas Valentine, Doc Future, um, you know, definitely, yeah. it seems like every day we're getting some better guests on there, so uh, awesome. definitely check that out, too. Great. And did I miss anything? Is there anything else you'd like to add other than contact your social media, or is the best way to people to ask uh, questions through your website? Uh, yeah, just ask me through the website or my email address, recluseofbabylonia at hotmail.com. Uh, so definitely that's usually the best way to get a hold of me. Or if you do enough searching on Facebook, you may just happen to find my account. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Again, the author is S. William Snyder or Steve Snyder. Title of the book, A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. Highly recommended. Lots of great information. People go to Vice Up. It's viceup.com, V-I-S-U-P, right? Uh, V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, viceupview.blogspot.com. Gotcha. That's a beautiful spot. Yeah, tons of great articles there as well, great research. Thanks so much. Thank you, William, for having me on. All right, have a good night.